Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. There's little let up by groups wanting to control the books that go into public schools and libraries. A number of books by Native authors are caught up in the fervor to restrict titles that are critical of American historical events or portray racial diversity in a positive light. The effort frustrates teachers and librarians who say the current momentum is denying children the breadth of knowledge needed to fully understand modern American life. We'll get an update on Native books in the crosshairs and what the fight is all about right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. After a year of planning, the guests have gathered and the table has been set for another Alaska Federation of Natives convention, which will officially come to order at 9 this morning. The Kasigamute dancers from Bethel will welcome delegates today as they take their seats on the convention floor at the Denina Center in downtown Anchorage. After opening ceremonies and speeches, the convention will hear from two keynote speakers this morning, Sophie Minnick, president and CEO of the Siri Native Corporation, and Ryan Reddington, champion of this year's Iditarod. This is the 57th annual AFN convention. This year's theme is Our Ways of Life, which will explore the subsistence lifestyles and communities across the state and how Alaska Natives are blending their culture and traditions to address today's challenges. Get out the Native vote efforts are underway this week in Anchorage as people from across the state gather downtown for the AFN convention. Michelle Spark is the director of Get Out the Native Vote, a statewide nonprofit, nonpartisan voter education group. She says one area they're focusing on is rural communities. Rural uh, village precincts with Native, Native populations did not vote at all, either in August or in uh, November. So we're here to make sure that the staffing happens, that there's less barriers to voting when it comes to an election day, and that our vote counts in the end. Spark says they're gearing up for 2024. The theme for this year's annual Elders and Youth Conference that was held at the Denina Center in downtown Anchorage, Alaska was Let It Be That We All Heal Each Other. In a room off to the side on the third floor was an energy healing room equipped with the beds for meditation and gentle massage, as well as acupuncture sponsored by the South Central Foundation. One of the people in attendance was George Hawley at the Baskin from Soldatna. He came to the Elders and Youth Conference to promote healing with multi-faith daily prayers at dawn. About four years ago at Elders and Youth, a group of indigenous Baha'i friends from all over Alaska proposed that dawn belongs to all and that the earth turns and humbles itself before the sun each day and we can do that too. And the Elders and Youth Conference was so open to it. We had a fire and folks were attracted to be able to have that kind of expression again. And it's been going since, so this is its fifth year. Another passion of Holly's is language revitalization. He says when it comes to healing, speaking your native language brings back cultural identity. 
Naomi Michelson is from Ketchikan. For 10 years, she worked for a domestic violence shelter, but found it hard to balance her personal life and her job. Still wanting to advocate for domestic violence victims, she took a different approach. I took some time off and started a business called Kase Indigenous Foodways. And my hope and goal is to help people reconnect back to the land and to each other. I'm passionate about helping people and uh, including myself uh, with healing and um, our families and our communities. Michelson's approach on using food for healing goes hand in hand with this year's Alaska Federation of Natives Convention theme, Our Ways of Life. By exploring the subsistence lifestyles and communities in the state and how using culture and traditions can help address today's challenges. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A children's book about two Native cousins nurturing a long-distance relationship found itself banned from a school district library. It joins a host of books by Native authors dropped from reading lists and libraries. Topics range from Native American history to multiracial families enjoying fry bread. An analysis from the literary organization Pen America finds school districts banned nearly 1,500 books last year, acts that the organization calls censorship. Some states are going so far as to levy criminal charges on publishers and sellers offering what they deem obscene content to grade school kids. Today we'll talk with Native librarians and authors about the trend to ban books, and we welcome your participation. How do you feel about book bans? And what would it take for a book to be removed from your child's classroom? Is your school district pulling books from shelves? If so, why? Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is author Laurel Goodluck. She is Mandan, Hidatsa, and Simshin. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Laurel. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. It's great to have you, Laurel. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Dr. Debbie Reese. She is the founder of American Indians in Children's Literature blog. She is Nambe Pueblo. Debbie, welcome back to you, too. Thank you, Sean. I'm glad to be here. 
Glad to have you. Joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota is Allison Waka. She is the president of the American Indian Library Association. She is Menominee and Navajo. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And joining us from the Forest County Potawatomi community in Wisconsin is Donald Keeble. He is the director of the Forest County Potawatomi Cultural Center and is a Forest County Potawatomi tribal member. Hi, Donald. Thanks for joining us. Miigwech, Sean, for having me. It's good to have all of our guests on the show today. Laurel, let's start with your book, Forever Cousins. It's a story about two young cousins keeping in touch over a long distance. It's also one of my daughter's favorite books, as you know, and it was dropped by a school board in Michigan. Do you know why? What happened? Yeah, this was really a shock to me. Some of my friends' books have been banned, but when it happens to you, it just is really shocking, and your emotions kind of go all over the place when this happens. And so my book was selected as part of We Need Diverse Books. They had this inaugural grant for school teachers who wanted to bring diverse books to their school districts. And so a teacher in Michigan, um, hand-selected the books that would come in her box because she was awarded it, awarded this grant. And then when her books arrived, the school board, which um, her school board um, put a stop, a halt to those books ever hitting the shelf for her students. And um, the school board is backed. The president is the one who, on the school board, who stopped this from from the books getting to her, and he is backed by conservative PAC financially, is how he got voted into his school board. So it's another way for children, all children, not to see themselves in books and other children not to see the broad world that they live in. Now, Laurel, what was the justification that they gave? What did they deem in the book inappropriate to the point that they felt the need to just remove the book from shelves. I'm still not clear. Yeah, and I'm still not clear because Forever Cousins, like you said, is a is a book about two little cousins, friendship, love, and and learning how it is to be apart and then be reunited again. In my back matter, it does talk about our Native history and what brought a lot of Natives to the city was the Indian Relocation Act. And this talks about history that often isn't in the schools, in our educational systems, because most, what, 70% of Native history isn't um, go past 1890s in the United States in our public schools. So I would think that maybe this is why he's banning it, because he doesn't want us to know the full history, our, our full humanity, what has happened to us as as a group of Native people here in the United States. But then I also think that he doesn't even, hasn't even read the book. So he probably doesn't mm-hmm. even know about the back matter. So I do believe these are moves by public schools that um, don't want to have any type of diversity, any type of truth in their schools. And that's all I can surmise. What do you think's driving this? Laurel, if perhaps some of these people aren't even reading the book, where are they getting their information? What's inspiring them to take these actions against books such as yours? 
Well, I think it's a bigger, a bigger system that's working, such as Mothers of Liberty and other conservative PACs that are working in divisive ways to infiltrate our school boards and our local governments as a way to control what's happening in our communities. It's a bigger issue, of course, in our bigger political system, but it's also, and I don't want to say smart, but just kind of evil the way that they can start at the local level. And that's why we have to pay so much attention to who's on our school boards and who's in our local mm-hmm. governments and what are their real, their real um, goals and what they're doing. Because it certainly isn't to educate kids and it certainly isn't to offer um, a full education to our children, all children. Laurel, today we're talking about one school district in Michigan. Are you concerned that other school districts could follow suit and this could turn into a a larger movement against Forever Cousins? Um, I think broadly it can turn into a movement against all diverse books. And we've seen it happen here in my local state of New Mexico where the uh, public library a group of, I believe it was Mothers of Liberty, tried to do the same thing to our local library in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. And enough people were able to stop it and librarians were able to stop this. But yes, I do believe they're going to keep poking and keep trying to, um, to have their voice in these governments to make a small group of people to make decisions for um, all our children. And how does this impact you as an author and your ability just to to get your books into the hands of as many readers as possible? Does it is there a stigma now attached to your book or, or do you think you're able to just get past this and just maybe write this off as, as a fringe group of of people that are, are just pushing an agenda? Well, I think there's a myth about it. I, a fellow author was um, talked to me and when this happened, I said, wow, you're a part of the club now and everybody's going to buy your book. <laughs> and I told him, this is, yeah, this is really a myth that a lot of times when your book gets banned, it can halt your book from growing and go, getting further into a further audience. I don't know the mechanics of that, but that's what I've been told by um, other fellow authors and read a little bit of, about it. So, yeah, I think right now it just, it just happened in September, so I'm still a little bit reeling from what does this all mean. Um, and even yesterday when I was presenting at NIEA, it's here in Albuquerque, the National Indian Education Association Convention, and was able to talk to 700 educators and let them know about this. Um, but also when they came to my table and I signed books, I was just relieved to see Forever Cousins still being bought and still being circulated, because I think underneath it all, it scares me. Right, right. Thank you, Laurel. I want to bring Debbie into the conversation now. And Debbie, you manage a a list of books by Native authors that have been banned. And can you share with us, what are some other titles in addition to Forever Cousins that have been recently excluded? Um, I added... Um, earlier this week, two books that Scholastic, the much-celebrated, much-loved Scholastic Book Fair has 
um, the administrators or people in power at Scholastic have created a special bookcase called Celebrate Every Voice, and they put Native and people of color in that case, and they let schools know that maybe you don't want this case. Because you might, you might have laws in your state that prevent, that could get you in trouble if you buy the books in this case. So Scholastic is, is caught up in, in the whole fervor, too. And um, I was studying that particular list of books in that case, and there are two by Native writers that are in that case. One is The Storyteller by Brandon Hobson, and the other is um, <clears throat> by M.L. Smoker. I'm scrolling down my list to get to her her title, but it, it's a, a, a graphic novel called Thunderous about a Lakota child. So those are two newly um, banned books or challenged, and the person or place that's doing that is the much-celebrated Scholastic Company. Okay, that's interesting because here's Scholastic. On one hand, it sounds like they're they're doing something pretty progressive. They're sharing this special bookcase. They're making it available. Uh, in some regards, they're celebrating some of these authors and these works. But then they're saying, but hold on a second. Uh, you might want to be careful about distributing this bookcase or sharing these titles with others. So this is fascinating. And uh, Laurel and Debbie, thank you so much for, for kicking off our conversation today. We're going to take our first break here in just a short moment. But I'd really encourage anybody listening right now, if you have any familiarity with book titles, children's books especially, uh, that have been banned or deemed offensive in some way, shape, or form, we'd sure like to hear your thoughts. What are your perspectives on this issue that impacts so many of us, not just children's readers, but also authors and communities at large? 1-800-996-2848. That is our phone number. Phone lines are open. 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're waiting for your call. The best barrel racers, bull riders, and calf ropers are getting ready to face off in Las Vegas to see who takes home championship buckles. The International Finals Rodeo is the biggest Native rodeo event of the year, and we'll get a preview on the next Native America Calling. Attention all ranchers, farmers, and conservationists. You can join the Indian Nation Conservation Alliance at their three-day annual meeting in Las Vegas starting October 24th to strategize for a sustainable future. Topics include tribal farming and ranching issues, tribal forestry programs, and more, all to strengthen tribal sovereignty through conservation. The session will also be live-streamed online. More info, including registration at inca-tcd.org who support this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the ongoing trend to ban books with Native history and stories. What are your thoughts on books that portray history or stories from a Native point of view? Join this conversation. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call. A reminder, you can always listen back to this show and past shows on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's go ahead and take our first caller now, Chanupa, listening in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. How are you guys? Let's go. 
Oh, hold on. Hold okay. Okay. How y'all doing? Harlan, I mean, uh, Sean, this is Chinupa. Listen, let me explain something to you. You know, when you guys got these things about these authors and books, Russell Means had a book called Where White Men Fear to Tread. Dee Brown written the book about Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And then there's another book out there by Dr. Ed Maloney called Voices in the Wilderness. These three books had been banned because they're controversial and the remarks that were illustrated in them. One of them was the senator of South Dakota, Stan Adelstein, that made a remark and said that to the public that Russell Means' book, uh, White Man Fear the Tread, was a lying book and it really didn't tell the truth. Ed Maloney, on the other hand, Voices in the Wilderness, spoke of everything from a tribal government's perspective. And when you read them, Voices in the Wilderness, Dee Brown's uh, Buried My Heart, I Wounded Me, he made a movie. He gave them a script to it, okay? And here they turn around and flabbergast, you know, Dee Brown, even though he's no longer with us. But those remarks on all three of them books specifically were the truth of how America practice and perfects colonial policies to neutralize voices in activism. And I, my hats go off to all three of them books because Voices in the Wilderness is a, a good one, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and Where White Men Fear the Tread. These are figures that did something to the community of indigenous people. And thank you for taking my comment, uh, Sean. I love you guys. The sister from down in Albuquerque, I hope she responds to that. It's the truth. <laughs> All right. We love you too, Chanupa. Laurel, I'm going to go ahead and let you respond to Chanupa. He mentions you just now in his comments, and uh, he shares with us some, some history going back quite a number of years. Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. That book was written, what, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Russell Means title as well. So there's some history here, Laurel. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it goes way back, and I think what's happening because of the current climate that it's becoming to the surface now, and we're becoming more aware of it. But I thank him for reminding us that it has a long history, unfair, unjust history. Right, right. Debbie, back to you. So, um, you know, earlier we were talking about, you know, maybe stories that project uh, historical events that haven't been traditionally taught in schools or, or maybe bring new perspectives. But can you give us a, like a little bit more insight, a little bit more details in terms of the specific types of topics or subject matter that some of these folks are just deeming too risky for young children and others to read right now? Sean, I think I, Laurel mentioned that she didn't think the school board, maybe it was the school board president, had read her book. Um, that's actually well said. The books that they are banning, the ones that I'm tracking, there isn't a commonality among them except that they're by a native writer. They're all over the map. Some of them have nothing to do that anyone would say was political or critical race theory or any of that. But these books are just ending up on some list, and people are putting a blanket condemnation to all the books on the list and then that list gets passed to another person who then goes to their school board writes the title down on a sheet of paper to challenge the book cut and paste 
some random sentence and this and the school has to deal with that so i don't think people are actually reading these books they're just mm -hmm. they're just getting on massive lists that are circulating around the country and are being used by political action committees to try and hurt books that bring a different point of view no matter what the story is about debbie your own book has been a target. What was the circumstance there? Do you think it was a similar situation? Somebody just blindly labeling it as a controversial book? Yeah, and I say that if they had actually read my book, the one that we adapted, the Moms for Liberty would be at the school board meetings reading excerpts from our book because we call into question the the way that the schools present George Washington. And we have passages that I know if they read that book, they would be reading that out loud at school board meetings, but they're not because they're mm -hmm. not reading the book. They're just passing around the list and pasting in general information. That whole bunch of books that um, Laurel's book is part of, those are called sexually explicit books. I'm like, no, they're not. They're not. This is just an example of this cutting and pasting that's sweeping over massive numbers of books. Okay. Debbie, both you and Laurel have mentioned Moms for Liberty, and this is a group that sprung up just within the last few years. And um, I'm just looking at their website now, and I just want to throw this out there. So here's what they say on their website. So are we book banners? Here's what we are not doing. We are not telling authors to stop publishing their work. We are not contacting public non-school libraries to censor their selections. We are not asking retailers to stop selling these books. We are not concerned with classic titles that the media wants you to believe. Uh, for example, Catcher in the Rye or To Kill a Mockingbird. This sounds like very different than what I'm hearing today. Uh, is this an accurate uh, description of, of what Moms um, for Liberty are doing, Debbie? What's your thought? I think the people at Moms for Liberty are very good at putting words on a paper or on a page or on a website that mislead the public as to what they're actually doing. I, I understand. I'm calling that kind of deceptive, manipulative, mm -hmm. but I think that's absolutely true. Okay. Let's take another caller, Jen, who is listening in East Texas online. Hello, Jen. Hello, CEO, and uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, living in, in East Texas in a very conservative well, Texas, totally, but especially in East Texas, I run into school teachers. I run into uh, well-educated people who've never even heard of the doctrine of discovery or so forth. And uh, as a Cherokee grandmother, I started writing my book, and I'm in the middle of it now, writing as a grandmother talking to her granddaughter because I want her to know the history. And, of course, that coming all the way from the first time we met a Cherokee or was met, you know, by explorers. So I'm sure that what's contained in my book when it talks to this young girl about why we're – Christians so afraid of natives and so on and so forth, it goes back to the doctrine of discovery and 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 other things. So I'm sure my book will be banned, and I'm very concerned about here. I'm spending so much time writing it, but I also want to know. Of course, Dr. Reese is wonderful. I always read her her books before I give them to my grandchildren. So I'd like to know what what do we how do we fight this? 
what are we going to do? And are they banning them from public libraries as well as school libraries? Okay, Jen, that's a really good... Yeah, Jen, thanks for that call. Uh, Debbie, Jen makes a really good, because ultimately the concern here is, is what we're hearing from Jen is perhaps other Native authors are now going to be discouraged from writing, and this could dramatically affect the amount of books that, that come out of Native communities and from uh, from Native authors. So what's your response, Debbie? What can you tell Jen uh, to give her some hope for going forward? I want her to keep writing. I want her to... Um do as our ancestors did we kept on going in the face of adversity we kept on going and that's why she's still here and i'm still here in laurel because we keep going so i want her to do that um it is going to have an effect on publishing publishing we, we all have these warm feelings about scholastic but the bottom line is scholastic is a business they're trying to make money sometimes they want controversy because controversy sells but sometimes they don't so i it is a concern um, definitely a concern. And this is happening not just in schools, but also in public libraries. This is a well-funded effort to destroy public education and public libraries. Let's take another caller, Denise, who is listening on station WOJB in Washburn, Wisconsin. Hi, Denise, you're on the air. Yeah, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, so I just wanted to say that when I was really young, my body was changing earlier than, uh, uh, you know, per se, the the changes take place in maturity in a, in a child. Um, so what was happening was is my menstrual cycle was coming on, and um, my mom had taken me to the doctor because she was worried about it. And what happened was is my mom was in a place where she felt like she could talk to me about the changes in the uh, maturity of my body. So uh, the doctor had suggested a book that I could get at the library. So if we had the book banning um, that we have now, you know, there would have been this little child that would be in this confused state and her mother wasn't able to share with what she needed to to help her along. So. Well, Denise, thank you for that call. And, and I remember some of those books, too, uh, from when I was a, a kid, some of those books that educated children about puberty and issues like that. And uh, so, Debbie, this is all part of I mean, we have to remind ourselves this is this is larger than than native authors in Indian country. Right. I mean, there's a, a wide range of books that are being targeted, not just books that draw from different racial or cultural backgrounds, but also some of these other larger issues. And um how concerned are you going forward that this whole movement could just really expand it at some point in the future, just really limit the amount of books that are available for people to read drastically? How worried am I? I, I, I am yeah. worried because I think I think some of the some of this is driven by the gains that people who are committed to providing children with mirrors like um, um, Denise is talking about a book that provided a mirror for her. She's going through something. Her mom doesn't have the words to help her with it. The book does. So books help kids in ways we are not necessarily completely aware of because um, we don't have that many people talking about that. But Denise is giving us a perfect example. If these trends, so, so we started to fill those voids, and people didn't like that. And so we're seeing a backlash, I think, right now to the growth and change, all of which is good. The um, people who are seeking to ban them, that's a worry. The, um, like I said, publishers, 
the bottom line. They care about that dollar. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Debbie. I want to bring Allison Waka into our conversation now. And again, she is the president of the American Indian Library Association. Allison, thank you again for joining us. And tell us uh, what you're hearing. What concerns specifically are members of the American Indian Library Association? What are they talking about with regard to these native book bans? I think one of the things that's um, one of our priorities is how can we support um, access to these books, and um, how can we continue to show support to our Native authors, our Native writers, and um, I think there are some good examples out there, like New York Public Library, and what they've been doing is having um, where you can access a banned book um, on their e-book services, and so they've been a, a great model for us to follow. Along with, um, uh, we are uh, an association that is under the American Library Association, and so we really follow um, and agree with their, their guiding principles. Um, with One of the websites is uh, uniteagainstbookbans.org, and they have some w wonderful resources on how to continue to support um, Native authors and the targeted books. So, I think our our priorities lie with how can we continue to support our native authors. In your association, do you folks carry weight to better informed decisions on, on what is appropriate or not? I would like to think so. <laughs> um, I we have a really great mem membership and um, very active membership, and um, we carry as much weight as we can within our library system. And a lot of times, um, unfortunately, you know, natives are minorities of minorities, and that's not only within um, native authors, but also native library staff, right? So a lot of us are alone in, <laughs> or, or, or a minority within our library system. but. We are very vocal, or we try to encourage everyone to be as vocal as they can with the resources that we're able to give them and in the partnerships that we're able to create to support them in their work. And Allison, how do you go about um, choosing which books you have available to access? Do you have an established set of guidelines? And if so, what's that process? Um, we don't. I don't think we have anything like... Um, specifically for the book bans, but what we do is we have the American Indian Youth Literature Award, which um, really has been, um, over the years, a, a guiding factor for, for I would say, Native and non-Native um, families and library staff to use as uh, the the wonderful native authored books that they should be purchasing for their libraries and for their homes. And um, so that's the, the one way that we are able to, um, I think our stance is more on supporting and promoting the authors that, that we um, establish and review. Um, so we're going through that process right now. We're going through um, the books that are sent to us and um, 
So we, Debbie's part of that, that crew too, that team, and we are taking our time and reviewing the books. And then, so we will have that announcement um, coming soon of, of the most recent uh, winners. Thank you, Allison. And I'm also curious, I mean, here you are, you're a librarian, you're a professional, you, you were trained to, to go through books and read books and understand books. And, and how does it make you feel when you get pushback from people who aren't librarians, who don't have your expertise, who say, hey, you know, we're, we're better qualified than you to make a determination about what types of books kids should, should be able to read and not read. What do you think about that, Allison? How does that make you feel? Um, well, just to, to comment on one part, I'm not I'm not a librarian. I work in libraries. I work for libraries, but I am uh, applying for my master's in library information science. So I'm not a librarian yet, but my mother is, and okay. so maybe it runs in my blood. I can. Um, <laughs> um, but I think my my. I'll tell my you what, Allison. Do me a favor. Hold that thought because we're going to take another break here. Hold that thought. I really like to get your feedback on on that question uh, with regard to uh, the role of professionals and librarians and teachers and others uh, with regard to these decisions and when people push back against those those uh, perspectives. So our, our number here at the studio, 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. Phone lines are open still. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. You're listening to Native America Calling, and there's still time to join this conversation about banned books. If you have comments or questions, please share them at 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we've got Allison Waka on the line right now, president of the American Indian Library Association. And Allison, before break, I asked you for your perspective. I mean, there's two ways to look at this. One is... Uh, People that work in libraries, uh, organizations such as yours, you folks are professionals. You have years of experience with regard to choosing, you know, what books are good to put on shelves and what books might not be. But at the same time, some folks might say, hey, well, look, you know, parents and some of these other organizations, they, they're stakeholders and they should have a say in terms of what types of books are available to the public. So what's your thought when people come at you, Allison, or your organization and say, look, we're, we're going to determine what types of books should be displayed in your on your shelves and, and which ones aren't well i think it, yeah that, to answer the two-part question it's really uh, I, I see myself as a parent and as an auntie and um i think parents should not be able to um filter what my child is is able to read or not read right so i mm -hmm. think that um the the bookshelf is is not up to somebody else to to weed out and that should be happening within the home right and um so and i also believe wholeheartedly that every child should be able to see themselves in books and by banning those books it it takes away that that right that that, that children have and families have 
And it's been a really long battle for us to even have representation in books. It's, and so now um, it's even more important for us to really show our support to libraries, library staff and parents um, and our Native families to continue to support their choice in their children's reading. Allison, now we're seeing libraries that are being threatened with funding withdrawals if they violate some of what these groups consider offensive. And, and how big is that threat? And uh, what could that mean for, for your organization and the libraries you represent? Sure. I think, well, um, for tribal libraries, I think it, 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 it might be a, it's a different kind of uh, funding source. But I think that with public libraries and so forth, Yes, but there is also the fundraising arm, the friends arm, right, where um, they are able to really um, to receive support from others, right? And so I think that's one way that taking an active um, uh, participation in your library. So just if you are an ally, to make sure that you have a presence within your library system. And I think... Um, Laurel was, was touching on that and making sure that our voices are heard and um, it, it goes a long way. It goes a long way when you are able to show up and, and, um, and be a patron within your library and that presence, it, it, it does go a long way and libraries, um, administration and so forth take account of that. Who is showing up? Who, who voices are here at the table? Thank you, Allison. Uh, I want to bring Donald Keeble into the conversation now. And again, he is the director of the Forest County Potawatomi Cultural Center. Donald, thank you as well for joining our show today. And, and tell us a little bit more about your library. I, I know there are some banned books that you folks have on the shelves there. And why is that? Why do you keep banned books on the shelves? Well, our library is... Uh our own library we don't follow any public uh library system so um like we have laurel's uh book on our shelves and you know that's a nice thing about all the uh especially focused banned books on our indigenous authors is that you know they can come to any they can come to our library and i would assume any other support in any other tribal libraries out there that that um support our indigenous authors. Well, that's good to know. And uh, are you concerned at all about your library getting pushed back? I mean, I know you're a tribal library, but even still, is there any way that uh, some of these folks that, that don't want these books to be circulated, that they can uh, push back against you? Uh, no, I don't. there is no way because we are our own. It's part of our, how we are using our own sovereignty is this is a a way that we educate our own tribal members and and um, the outside community beyond our reservation, uh, we you know we uh, we control what is in our library. Nobody else can tell us what comes in their library. So, and what's that process, Donald? Do you have a committee, or do you make those decisions, or do you have any other larger tribal input in terms of what books are on the shelves? Uh, yes, uh, actually, I just have a brilliant team. You know, I have my uh, 
museum manager, Samantha Smith, that works really closely on the books. And we got our librarian, Lois Frank. Uh, we all, you know, go over books and, you know, we have actually a pretty good relationship with Deborah uh, Reese. And, you know, she actually helped us come up with a checklist uh, to look out for when we get books and uh, make sure that they're appropriate and represent uh, Indigenous people in general, because we do have some non-Native authors in our library. Mm -hmm. What about some of the books that we had our, our caller, Chanupa, who mentioned earlier, the, you know, the Russell Means book, Where White Men Fear to Tread, and um, some of these other titles for, for more for adult readers. Uh, do you have any of those types of books that maybe have been banned or have been criticized that you make sure to keep on yourselves? I am very happy to say we have all of them. You know, we have we are we have books that range from books for preschool kids all the way up to if you're going to college and you need research books on on education, on science, or any other topics that you may cover, law or anything like that. So we have a wide range of uh, indigenous authors in our library. Okay. Now, on the other side of the coin, there's been pushback against um, some of these books that, that don't portray Native American culture or history in, in a positive light uh, by today's standards. For example, Little House on the Prairie, that series has gotten a lot of pushback by, by Native readers and by Native groups. And I know Debbie's involved with that. Also, a book I read as a kid, Julie of the Wolves. What's your, do you keep any of those books uh, in the library? You, you avoid those? We we actually do keep some of those books in our back room of our library because our our department does provide uh, like cultural sensitivity training, and part of one of those days of our training is that we take whether it's our uh, people that work for the tribe or the local school districts or any other kind of. Um, enterprise that's out there that wants to join our council sensitivity training, we take them through um, uh, training on how to identify real good resources on your own so you're not dependent just solely on the tribal. Like for us, they're not solely um, relying on me and Samantha to go through their books and give it okay. They have a checklist to go through them. And the books that you mentioned we have in in the back room, we use them as as teaching tools and mm -hmm. we hand them out and then they go through that checklist to determine if this is a good or bad book for their library or use it as research or to read to their kids. All right. Thanks, Donald. And Debbie, I'd like to chime in as well, because these efforts that we're talking about today, you know, targeting books like Forever Cousins and the book that you wrote, Debbie, and some of these other titles, how does do those efforts compare with the work that you've done to get school officials and others to reconsider A Little House on the Prairie, Julia of the Wolves, and some of these other books that, that go back way, way, and a lot of kids read those growing up in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, that's a good question because people um, who have not thought carefully about what this is about will try to say that I'm trying to censor Little House on the Prairie, for example, um, and I am not. I want people to understand that when you have a child in a classroom, that child is being taught using books 
And because it is a classroom where they're being educated, it's really important that the content of the book be accurate. And if it's not, teachers would be, um, because they're, that's what they do, they teach, it would be appropriate for them to select books that don't miseducate kids. So the books, they're not the, it's not the same concern at all. When teachers are mm-hmm. choosing not to use a book because it has bad representation, that's not a book, that's not a decision about censorship. It's about education. Okay. And Debbie, also, I, I mean, as I understand it, I mean, you, you, you use the words like not recommended, right? With regard, like you say, I, I don't recommend Little House in the Prairie, but you're not calling for a ban on that. You're not going to libraries and say, pull it off the shelves, are you? No. Okay. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting distinction. Um, but it just it, it does really underscore just just how much perspectives have changed and, and how much uh, just some of these conversations have really evolved uh, in recent generations. And I want to go back to Laurel because, um, Laurel, what are you hearing from from some of your other friends who write books and, and other native readers as well? I mean, what's what are their thoughts for people, just regular people that might be reading books, native books, and, and just their concerns with what we're looking at now with these censorship issues? Well, what I'm hearing from other readers is just in shock about it, that they can't believe that this is happening because they've read the book. And then other Native writers were looking kind of at the bigger issue of what is publishing going to do now. And that's what we're all a little bit, you know, at the edge because edge of what this can mean because of, um, you know, 2014, we knew diverse books hashtag came out and our door was open to publishing. We finally got our foot in and we have these great books coming out and we have representation, which um, was mentioned before how important that is. And we just wanted to get this rolling and it's just starting to roll and make small changes. And then this book banning starts, this book banning of a small amount of people who are fearful of America's demographics changing. And we have to remember that 70% of parents oppose book banning. So I guess we as Native writers, back to that, is that we're really watching what the publishing industry is going to do. Are they going to follow suit of what Scholastic is doing and putting their money first and not children first? Are they going to do the honorable thing and put children first and keep this momentum of representation going? Mm-hmm. Well, as Debbie commented earlier, I mean, it, it is a business decision in, in many cases. And Laurel, do you see a need for, for more Native-run publishing houses? And if so, what could go about bringing more Native interests on that level with regard to the publishing and the folks that ultimately make the decisions as to whether or not these books are going to be available? Well, I think that's a good point. I think, yes, we should always strive to have our own businesses and have our own voice there. But we also have this big industry that controls a lot of that. So we also have to be able to have organizations like We Need Diverse Books who is helping um, young people who, or older people who are trying to get in the industry as editors or any part of that publishing so that we can have our voice in that area because it's a very well-established old um, organization of publishers and they really do control a lot of this. So I think we have mm-hmm. to have both. Right, right. 
Debbie, would you agree with that? Uh, even with more native publishers, you're still going to need those mainstream old school publishing houses to kind of work with us going forward. Yeah, they they do have name recognition. Uh, parents, librarians, everybody recognizes names like Harper Collins and Scholastic, and um, so they do have name recognition and lots of money and power to change the future. So yes, we need both. Okay. Uh, Donald, back to you. A anything else you'd like to add to our conversation today? Any new perspectives with regard to the censorship issues with some of these book bans and native authors, native books? Um, it, it is worrisome because we're already a limit, limited demographic with uh, representation when it comes to books. Um, right now, I know that we don't really have that issue in the small area where we're from. Um, but we just we just believe in trying to educate as much as we can and try to get those few allies in the school systems to keep advocating for us. Um, we are very grateful that the school systems do work closely with the tribe. And um, there has been one school system in particular in the past few months that has allowed our our libraries have to go into their library, into the, in their school library, and allowed us to pull all the inappropriate books that that don't represent uh, Indigenous people in a good way. So, and um, and we're going to replace them with the authors like Laurel and everything. We're going to put the books back into the school that represent us in a good way. But it is, I think, the one thing that we can provide that you can for sure say that we've seen has been working a little bit is to continue to educate and and uh, be open, uh, be trying to create those relationships and be open for one another. So, well, Donald Keeble, appreciate you joining the conversation today, along with Dr. Debbie Reese, Laurel Goodluck, and Allison Waka for their insights on book bans and the impact on Native authors, readers, and communities. Please join us again tomorrow for a preview of the biggest Indian rodeo event of the year happening in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hope you'll tune in. I'm Sean Spruce. Good day. Protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian health care provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the 9th Annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, 
with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.